We're in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, we're going, we are remember, if you remember, last week we really got into chapter 1 and the presentation of Paul in his testimony, which would seem kind of unnecessary considering the uh, recipients of his letter, which are the Galatian people that he led to Christ by and large, the churches that he established with Barnabas in the uh, second, or first and second missionary journeys. And uh, you think, well, is it really necessary for him to rehearse all that? But he's really rehearsing it from a perspective that uh, he is not a one dependent upon the administration of others, but rather his salvation and his call to the ministry is a work of God in his life and uh, that he is not dependent upon the work of men. And this is going to be very important and substantial to his whole argument of the book and so from a personal perspective, he's establishing his own authority, but he's also, in the, in the course of that, establishing as well the foundation of our theology. And that theology isn't derived from Paul, it's derived from the Lord, and it is from his teaching and from his work in our life and the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit upon God's Word. And so we find that uh, his sharing of a testimony that we're pretty familiar with from our study in Acts on Sunday morning, uh, that we want to pull out several things along the way, but we don't want to miss the real purpose that he is driving at while we address a couple of other issues uh, as we did last Sunday. Last Sunday night we addressed the issue of uh, the statement that um, he uh, had uh, from his mother's womb been set aside, and we addressed that hopefully, to your satisfaction. Uh, And if not, you certainly could discuss that with me further. I'd be glad to engage in that. Um, But we want to also now look a little further on as we get into chapter 2. And this is, uh, again, a continuation. Uh, There isn't a great break between chapter 1 and 2 in the text of, of what he's presenting. He is still in the midst of rehearsing the history of his uh, engagement with the Church of Jerusalem, uh, which, of course, becomes very important dealing with Judaizers who are claiming that as their authority. So they're going back to Jerusalem and to the apostles and to what the Jerusalem church was engaged in as the basis of their authority. They're not really talking revelation. They're not claiming necessarily, uh, some could be, but they're not claiming direct revelation from God. They are claiming the authority of Rabbi so-and-so or of Apostle so-and-so or Peter or the church or this is how they do it in Jerusalem, why aren't you doing it here? Uh, They're claiming that kind of authority. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, I'm not going by that authority. The authority that I'm working off of is the authority, direct authority of Jesus Christ. And he's also trying to um, help the Galatians understand his role uh, as being not subservient to that of the apostolic presence in Jerusalem, but as equal with them and uh, running in tandem with them. Not that he is opposing them, but that he is uh, equal and that they recognized his role that God had selected him for. And so we come into chapter 2 and we are a little bit farther along in the discourse uh, let's just very quickly, though, to cover our bases, pick up in verse, chapter 1, verse 18, and read a little bit, and we'll talk about that engagement with Peter, and then uh, 
the engagement that we find in the book of Acts, chapter 15, uh, that included Titus. So let's go ahead and read Galatians 1, 18, and through into chapter 20, and chapter 20, chapter 2. It says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God I do not lie. Afterward I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only this. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God in me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. And we're going to stop there for the time being because um, the rest of the engagement that he's going to talk about throws us into a different uh, uh, feel, arena, if you will. Instead of in Jerusalem, it takes us into Antioch. But we want to look at this not just as an account of, oh yeah, those are, that's a summary of the things that happened, but rather we want to correlate them a little bit for your information just so that you're on board with where we are chronologically. Uh, we can look at the visit with Peter and uh, that was three years after his, uh, after his uh, reception of Christ uh, with, for 15 days that it was a pretty brief visit. It was only with a very small handful of people uh, and that largely everyone else didn't know it. Remember that when Paul went there, um, everyone was afraid of him. Uh, they thought it was a trick. This is a trick to uh, flush out the Christians so that we can get more of them arrested. I mean, this is Saul, and uh, he's not above that. They'll do anything to get us out, and so they thought it was a trick. And uh, finally, remember that Barnabas took courage to go and talk to him, and then took him and introduced him to the apostles, and we were told here that it really wasn't all of the apostles, but uh, by Paul's testimony, it was Peter uh, and uh, James, the Lord's brother. And so the, the leader of the apostles, if you will, and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and so he met with them uh, and uh, was well identified. Of course, Barnabas would have been involved in this, but he would not have been considered in the leadership and so we have two representatives of the leadership of Jerusalem, one representing the apostles, one representing the church that met with Paul, and 
through the mechanism of Barnabas, son of encouragement, bringing him to them uh, and taking the risk. And so instead of risking the whole church, they're just risking these two leaders, and Paul's able to meet with them. And uh, they identify him and uh, share the news with everyone else that the one that's been our greatest nemesis is now our brethren. And uh, all those people in the churches didn't know, that didn't know Saul already, um, didn't know who Saul was yet. He didn't take a tour of the churches to introduce him as this is now a benefactor instead of an enemy of the church. Uh, but they heard. And so verse 23 said, they heard, and that's all they did, they heard that the one who used to persecute us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorify God in his testimony. So even before he's really engaged fully in ministry, um, although he has a calling of God, he's already demonstrated some proficiency and willingness to serve God in that capacity, before he's really fully engaged in the fullness of what God called him to, he's already been identified and been a blessing to the church in his own right, simply by this opportunity now for the church to be at peace. Remember that that is the description, that once this happened, there was peace for the church for a season. And so there's already a, a sense of the church had already been blessed by him, by his uh, conversion. Uh, maybe not as direct ministry, but indirectly they have been blessed. So we come now, we fast forward 14 years later, and we really need to discuss the time frame here. Um, we know that uh, there was two occasions that Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem it does not appear that Paul really talks about the one occasion which they took a gift in Acts chapter 11 at the end of the very last verse of the chapter. They took a gift and a, a, the church sent Paul and Barnabas uh, to deliver the gift to the Jerusalem church because there had been uh, a famine and they had had a prophecy about it. And so they took a collection from Antioch, took it down there. But there's no indication that anyone else went with them on that event. Some commentators want to say that. What he's talking about here is that event in chapter 11. But there really wasn't any discussion. There was no engagement. Uh, it seems that that was just a, a very brief visit. They were coming down there saying, here's a gift. They presented it, and there's no indication they spent an extensive amount of time there. Certainly not the level of uh, engagement that's described here. But if you go to Acts chapter 15, I invite you to turn there very quickly. We do have... Uh, room, if you will, for Titus. Uh, there's really no evidence, and by the way, nowhere in the book of Acts is <laughs> Titus' presence ever mentioned. His name is not brought up in the book of Acts at all. And so you might say, well, how did Luke miss this guy that's so important to Paul's ministry? And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But uh, I want you to look in chapter 15, and uh, this is really tied in very tightly. And of course, when I preached Acts 15, we did study Galatians 2 a little bit, but that was some time ago, and some of you may not have been here for it. And so let's look at it very carefully. In chapter 15, verse 1, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them that is, of the people of Jerusalem, or of Antioch, should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, 
describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them, to command them to keep the law of Moses. And that, of course, instigated the Jerusalem council um, that we're going to look at in a little bit. So when Paul says, I have tight, it took Titus with me, certainly in, in Acts 15, we have this declaration. It wasn't just Paul and Barnabas, but others of the Antioch church were sent to accompany Paul and Barnabas on this very important theological mission. We're going to get this straightened out, and uh, Paul and Barnabas are not backing down at all to these guys. They have identified this error, and they have been opposing it from the first sentence that came out from these guys. There was no compromise. There is no, um, well, let's just hear them out. And there's uh, Paul and Barnabas' reaction is strong and immediate. And it creates some dissension, some, some disagreement, some friction in this church in Antioch. Remember, this is the church where, that, uh, where first, for the first time, followers of the way were called Christians, little, little Christ's. And uh, so among the people, this is fascinating to me, among the group that they send down to Jerusalem to represent their church is Titus. Now, Titus is not a part of the missionary team that is sent out from Antioch. Remember, it was Paul and Barnabas, and they took with them John Mark. He wasn't even named among the five who were in prayer um, before the missionary journey. Uh, many feel that he w- may have been a convert of Paul from Galatia that traveled home with him. But we have no record uh, in Acts of that. And so either he was a Greek man who had come to know Christ in Antioch, perhaps very young, and was not really of sufficient stature in his walk with the Lord to be included in the prayer session and to be identified as someone to be sent out on the first missionary journey, and that he was one of the elders that was stayed back, or one of the future elders that stayed back in the Antioch church um, to mature and grow in the Lord. And by the time Paul and Barnabas got back from their missionary journey, the first one, by then he had matured and was ready. Uh, that is one scenario that would fit. And so either one of those, whether he came from Galatia, uh, and maybe that's why Paul identifies Titus by name for the Galatian people, is even Titus, someone you know or know about, um, wasn't circumcised, wasn't required to be circumcised. So here is a Greek person. So out of all the people in their church, they're going to send Titus, who apparently at this point is a pretty young man, uh, maybe even still a teenager uh, at this point, because he's going to be active in ministry for the rest of Paul's work. And so he's named here. And he is sent by the Church of Antioch as one of the group of others that Luke doesn't name that are sent down there and go through this tour of, of Phoenicia and Syria introducing the work of God from the first missionary journey. Whether Titus was produced as here is one of the products of that missionary journey or simply here is a product of what's going up in Antioch. Remember, Antioch itself was a a uh, Gentilian church. And so um, the first missionary journey didn't open the door. Uh, Antioch was really very full of Gentiles and as well as some Jews. 
And so it could have been from either place. Um, we have not a lot of information on Titus. For having a book of the Bible written to him, you'd think we'd have lots of information, but we really don't. Um, but I pretty much prefer the second one, that he's a young man from Antioch, a, a Greek one. Timothy is one that he picked up in Asia. Uh, and, uh, there's, and we have that in the second missionary journey. So where did Titus come in? And the evidence is that it probably from Antioch itself. And so the church sends him. And uh, whether he is alone in his coming to Christ or whether it is within the context of his family, and he goes as a representative there, he goes as a Gentile. And this is going to bring out uh, and flesh out something that Paul's going to address in a major way later on in the book. And that is this idea of Titus. So here comes Paul, Barnabas, a group of others from Antioch, uh, including Titus. And we're going to come right back to that here in just a few verses. Uh, it says he went up by, uh, by or because of a revelation uh, and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. So when he goes down there uh, to resolve this issue, uh, they begin at the very beginning. Uh, they don't begin with the contention, but rather, let me just let you hear what I preach when I go out there and preach. This is what's being preached in Antioch. This is what has been preached in Galatia. So let me just share with you what my message is, what I am sharing with everybody. And his statement is, well, that the apostles said, well, that's the gospel. We concur. Um, And Paul wants to present, he says, I don't want to be preaching a different gospel than you. Remember, that's very important in Galatians. Is, this a, is Paul's theology different, so different that it needs to be called Pauline theology, uh, so different from that of Christ, of the church, of Peter, of James, of these others? Is it that different? And so he goes up, and remember, uh, while he's been a believer for a while now, 17 years, he's been on a missionary journey, um, he goes there and really says, this is my message, do we have a problem? Am I preaching uh, the wrong message? Did you not, is this not what you are receiving from the Holy Spirit? Is this not what you understood Jesus to be teaching? Is this not what you understand the law and the prophets to be pointing to? And so he says, I did that so that I wasn't wasting my time. I didn't want to be, be, uh, we're not going to start with the argument. We're going to start with the foundation. Let's, let me lay down the foundation. I say, I'm preaching out there, what I'm saying and we'll see, then we can go from there. And once they agreed with that foundation, um, everything else was going to fall into place very, very uh, easily, although uh, I should say very quickly, not necessarily easily. So having heard his gospel that he preaches, and we have examples of that in Acts that we've studied, right? So we have example of a message to the synagogue. We have example of a message outside the synagogue. We have a message which are people who are known to the synagogue. And then we have a message to the philosophers on Athens. We have all these example sermons of Paul. We have, uh, not all of them have been spoken by the point of the writing of Galatians. But he goes there and he shares, this is my message. And having heard that um, and considered that, uh, here with him in the room, (laughs) with the apostolic authority, are... Among others, Titus. 
an uncircumcised Greek young man sent as a representative of the church of Antioch. Now that to you and I might not be uh, such a big deal, but it's huge. It's enormous. And so when we get to verse 3, it says, Yet, after having shared my whole presentation, here's what we're preaching up in Antioch, not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. What we just read in Acts 15 was that some of the Pharisees who had come to Christ and were still zealous for the law said, these guys got to be circumcised. And it became an issue. Well, what guys are they talking about in Acts 15? They're talking about Titus. This guy right here needs to be circumcised. So it wasn't that all of the leadership of the church was in agreement there in Jerusalem and just ho-hum said, well, of course you don't have to be circumcised. No, this was the point of contention. And it's huge. And it's huge to the book of Galatians for one reason. And that is, is the relationship of circumcision to the law. And this we need to appreciate and understand. So, for several thousand years now, since the giving of the law, and really even prior to that, but certainly back to Abraham, Israel has been identified by circumcision. And remember that uh, even some of Israel's children, Jacob's children, uh, kind of tricked one town into circumcising all their males so they can go in there and slaughter them uh, on, the, on the lie that, well, then you can marry our women if you, all your guys get circumcised in your whole town. And so it was already well identified that this is the, the sign of the covenant agreement between uh, Abraham and God. Uh, that we are his chosen people, and more specifically, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob being known as Israel, his other name. And so uh, it became an embodiment, really, of what it meant to be an Israelite. And so when men came to Christ, or came and wanted to convert to Judaism, to, not Judaism, to become an Israelite, because Judaism technically is only Judah, tribe of Judah, when they wanted to become a follower of Jehovah, of God, an Israelite, um, among the first things they did was circumcision. You circumcise them. And now that they are circumcised, they are ready to keep the rest of the law. Essentially, without the covenant sign, you were not bound to the law. The covenant sign of circumcision, now you are tying yourself to the rest of what it meant to be an Israelite. And so when a Pharisee stands up and says, these new Christians need to be circumcised, he is essentially saying they need to be bound to this older covenant that involves the law. That they have to keep all the ceremonial laws, all the cleanliness laws, all the food laws, they have to keep all of those. Um, And rather than saying, well, it's the Ten Commandments or the Law of Moses, um, Paul takes it to its heart because circumcision predates the law. And you guys realize that, right? That the law didn't come till Moses, um, but circumcision started at Abraham. And so when you're addressing circumcision, you're addressing something that predates the law. 
So, when you think of Israelites are going to keep the law, you do realize that that means from Moses on. Because prior to Moses, between Abraham and Moses, we don't have a food law. We don't have a ceremonial law um, outside of what we have in the early parts of Genesis. The idea that you have to have the shedding of blood, which was established very early with Cain and Abel. Um, and that you call upon the name of the Lord, and we have some other indicators of certainly what is righteous and what is not righteous. Um, but in terms of a formal covenant law, that didn't come about to Moses. So when Paul wants, and, and the question comes out about circumcision, um, that is prior to Moses. So what he's saying is, do we have to keep any of Moses? Let's Let's set the law over here, all the food laws, all the ceremonial laws, all the sacrificial laws. Let's set them all over here. And before we even can get to them, let's talk about how you even enter into that covenant. And the way we identify ourselves as entering into the covenant that now binds us to this law, we're going to deal with circumcision. So if a person isn't a circumcised individual, are they bound to the law? And we have some interesting examples of that in the Old Testament, that we have no evidence that these men ever became circumcised, yet we look at their lives and we say, these are followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? We have them. We we have a guy named Melchizedek, king of Salem. We have Pharaoh, Joseph's Pharaoh. Um, We have uh, later on Nebuchadnezzar, that's after the law. We have Naaman. We have all these individuals that have intersection with God's people and declare very boldly sometimes that there is no God but Joseph's God. There is no God but uh, Daniel's God. There is no God, but I'm, I'm going to go in there because I have to serve the king, but I'm going to take dirt from Israel because I'm going to serve the God of Israel. There's no evidence that Naaman was ever circumcised or kept the law but he was worshiping the God of Israel. And so um, there isn't isn't a situation where there's no precedence for this, but circumcision becomes critical. Because if we are allowed to worship and follow after God without it, now the law no longer has reign over us. It still is value. We're not devaluing it, but we're putting in its place, and that is to teach us that we're sinners, teach us our need, to teach us righteousness and and holiness and justice so that we can grasp our wickedness. We can grasp our deplorable condition and how futile it is for us to try to fix it ourselves. Um, And so the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it, and we're going to talk about all that and uh, you're seeing it in your, your Sunday school study in Hebrews as well. And so, um, when Paul br- introduces Titus into this argument, he's not just stating a historical fact. It's very critical to the message. Here we have an uncircumcised Greek believer. What do you do with him? What do you do? Do you impose... The ceremonial laws, do you po- impose them all? And it starts off, it all starts with circumcision. So let's start there. Prior to the even having to deal with the body of the law, let's go to that which predates the law, 
the sign of the covenant, and that is circumcision. And they said they didn't make Titus get circumcised. By the time the Jerusalem Council is done, they're, they're, they've ruled it all out. They said they've limited it down really to um, that we're not going to participate in the idolatrous practices around us. We're going to stay separate uh, from the world and worldliness, and we're going to care for each other. And, and we looked at that in our study of Acts. And so Titus becomes a very important test case for Paul. And out of this, he is going to press the issue that if, if there's no circumcision required, then none of the rest of the law can be required. Because <laughs> you can't really be called to the rest of the law if you don't have circumcision first, because that's the sign of your covenant with the lawgiver, Jehovah. And so once you had that legal covenant through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and you accepted that through the sign of circumcision, now, from the Moses on, you need to keep the law. And so Titus is pushed forward. And then we're also given some of the underworkings, kind of in the reverse order of what we saw in Acts 15, but we find out what happened. And so we, here comes these men up from Jerusalem. Uh, remember, these aren't the first guys to come from Jerusalem. Remember the first guys to come from Jerusalem included a guy named Barnabas who got so excited what was happening there, he says, I'm staying. This is great. I'm just staying here. I'm going to serve the Lord here. This is fantastic. Uh, they're excited about what God's doing up there. But also in verse 4, we find that others came up without such a good spirit. In fact, Paul calls them false brethren who came in with ulterior motives. He says they secretly brought in, by stealth, spies. Yeah, these are pretty strong words to bring us into bondage. I mean, this he does not have a complimentary thing to say about these people at all. And no wonder in Acts 15, Luke describes a very strong conflict arising in Antioch over this. In Paul's mind, there is no gray area here. And in our minds, there should not be any gray areas. And those people that are out there that are calling us to those gray, as if there is a gray area, um, need to be warned because they are falling into this category of description. False brethren who are sneaking in spying out our liberty to put us into bondage. That's pretty in your face, don't you think? Uh, He's not saying they're just confused, misguided, they haven't matured, they haven't caught up, um, they haven't studied it all out, uh, they can't get over the, the uh, culture. Um, no, that's not what he is. He said these people knew what they were doing. They were coming in. They were secretive about it. As they misrepresented themselves when they first encountered us, they come in by stealth, spy us out, so that they can try to convince us to come back into that bondage of the law. And this is still going on today. This is the reality. And we tend 
to say, well, those are just our mixed-up, confused brethren who haven't discovered liberty of Christ. That is not the kind of verbiage Paul would have used for them. How do I know that? Because he didn't use it for them at all. I say, they glory and they revel in the keeping of, of, the, of the holy days of Israel, of uh, sounding off shofars and dressing a certain way and, and celebrating all of this stuff. And, and they glory in it as if somehow they are the higher ones and they're worshiping God better than us because we're doing it like they did in the Old Testament. Um, and that somehow that's superior and better uh, and out of that group also comes a lot of misinformation. Oh, you guys are celebrating pagan holidays. Um, and usually it's tied up into the celebration of Christ's birth and his resurrection. And they are the ones that are going to seek to undermine uh, worshiping on Sunday. Uh, they're going to undermine uh, all of this kind of stuff. And Paul's statement to them is they are false brethren. Now, that can be taken a couple ways. They're either brethren who are speaking lies, or they are pretending to be brethren so that they can introduce this error. Either way, they're bad people. They're not nice. They're not beneficial to the church at all. They are not to be catered to. They are not to be endured. They are not to even be fully heard out. And... I share with you the phone call that I got. And, um, and and so similar to this, they call, I'm looking for a church. And I was like, okay, well, what can I share with you? Are you? Do you really preach the truth? And I'm like, well, I preach God's word verse by verse and ask the Spirit to direct that. And so I believe he says, well, you know, so I'm thinking I'm in a nice conversation with a uh, uh, fellow believer that's looking for a church that's called secretly by stealth spying us out and he's him hawing around a little bit I said well what's the issue are you King James I mean there's issues around here people when they call looking for a church and they they have a background all right what's the issue and, of course, his issue was, well, then why are you having church on Sunday? If you really believe in, in God's word, why are you? And then boom, 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 boom. And what is his whole objective? Start the conversation out in a lie. He isn't looking for a church. He's looking for a fight. Why else would he call a pastor whose church meets on Sunday? Why else would he call me? By the way, he called me on a Saturday, so that's his form of worship is to call a pastor who he knows his church meets on Sunday. He's not interested in coming to our church. He doesn't want to know information about our church or about my preaching. He wants an argument. He comes in by stealth, by secrecy, (laughs) spying out our liberty. Why? He's hoping to bring me back into bondage. You have to keep the Old Testament law. It was never undone. And my statement is, do you have the book of Galatians in your Bible? (laughs) Of course, it was very convenient that I was preparing for this series while he's calling. 
So this is still going on today. And if they're doing that to Baptist preachers, I'm pretty sure they're probably doing the same thing to a lot of other Christians out there in their activity. And I'm sure many of you, well, I know several of you have had those encounters, whether they are the, the, the Seventh-day Adventists or whether they are the uh, um, Messianic churches um, or whatever else they call themselves. Um, this Paul has to describe them. They come in, they sound really important and good, and they know their stuff. I mean, these people know Hebrew. They must know everything because they know Hebrew. As if Paul didn't know Hebrew. <laughs> Paul knew Hebrew, remember? Really well. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knows his stuff. None of these people in Jerusalem, and none of these people from Jerusalem, are going to be able to go toe-to-toe with this guy. He was trained by one of the best in Jerusalem. He knew his stuff. They couldn't do Hebrew circles around him. They couldn't sit there and, and they couldn't do it. That was the frustration in synagogue after synagogue by all the Jewish leaders. It's like, oh, this guy is so persuasive. He uses the Bible and he knows it and he's a Pharisee and he, and he knows. He can, he can handle these people. And yet he submits himself and goes down to Jerusalem and says, let's see what they're going to do with it. And Titus isn't required to be circumcised and once you don't have to be circumcised, the law isn't applicable. Because you're not in that in that covenant. You're in a different covenant. You're in a covenant that's sealed not by the blood of bulls and goats, but of the blood of Jesus Christ. You're in a better covenant. Have you gotten to that in Hebrews? I don't think so yet. You're going to get there. A better covenant. It's coming. Come to Sunday school. Okay. By the way, I'm listening back there usually, except for when I'm not. (laughs) Sometimes I have to teach. So, we... uh, See these people, and it's real easy for us to say, well, they're nice people, and they believe the Bible. Um, I had a fellow pastor up in Rio Rancho who was going to start a Southern Baptist church, and uh, he was going door to door, and I was talking to him, and, and uh, he got into an agreement with a Seventh-day Adventist church that, that they would let him rent their facility on Sunday. So they don't use it, but apparently they don't feel so strongly about that if you have some money, they won't let it be used for that purpose. I can't quite figure that out. That's of the devil which I've been called by those guys. Um, I don't know why they would rent it to someone to be used for their devil worship. Um, and so here's a young pastor coming to my door, and I'm a young pastor. We're both starting churches in Southern Baptist, mine Independent Baptist, and, uh, and which, by the way, he also visited my church, uh, not telling me that that's what he was. Oh, that really bugs me. Just tell me who you are. Um, coming in by stealth and spying out the other churches. Um, Anyway, how would I get onto that? So here he comes, and he says, it's amazing. They're, they believe just like us. They just worship on Sundays. And I'm like, or on Saturdays. I say, what? I said, you better come in and sit down, brother. I said, have you read any of their stuff? Have you read the writings of Mrs. White and her prophecies and what she's declared and the foundations? Have you gone through the history of her and Dr. Kellogg and, and what their teachings are? Have you really looked at this or are you just done a cursory thing taking their word for it? So even a pastor getting ready to start a church gets confused. He's not well taught. 
So don't feel bad if you've been snookered into that as well. They are false brethren speaking lies who sneak in, spy out your liberty, seek to put you into bondage. They have powerful arguments. And if you don't think their arguments are effective, then you don't understand what happened in Antioch. Their argumentation was so Even though it was so strong, even though it was well cared for by Paul, who was more than capable of handling it, it was so confusing to the people of Antioch that they had to send everyone down to Jerusalem to sort it out. That's with Paul as your resident theologian. That's how convincing these people are. That's how influential they can be. That here's a strong church with Gentiles in it <laughs> who aren't circumcised, guys like Titus, and they're so confounded by both sides that they go, we don't want to have to address, we don't want to make the decision, send it down to Jerusalem and let's let everyone do it once and all for the church. So even in that context, we go, well, Paul and Barnabas couldn't squelch it in their own church. So they went down to Jerusalem and addressed it. So when Paul gives these kinds of descriptions of these guys, please realize that that is the case today. They are self-glorying. That is, that ultimately, they are more interested in their own observances as a right to heaven than they are to the blood of Jesus Christ. You can... Try to make that not true. You can do some linguistic gymnastics with words and try to make it not mean that. But the fact is, they are false brethren who are spying them out, who are wanting to take away the liberty of the church, who are trying to bring us into bondage to the whole law and rob the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is who they are. And so when Paul describes them this way in verse 4, no wonder by verse 5 he says, I didn't yield to them for one hour. I didn't give them an hour of time before I was in full opposition to what they were saying. Not one hour. Isn't that incredible? Those guys show up in church and one hour later, you've got a knockdown, drag-out fight on your hands. Paul and Barnabas aren't about to let these words go unaddressed. In our society, it's my time almost up here, in our society, this kind of speech and this kind of confrontation is frowned upon. Um, we, we have grown so fond of the words, don't judge me, um, and it is, the, it is the sad calling card of this generation. You can't judge me. Um, that's a declaration of I am God. Fact is that God's word judges you. All the time. And when I apply God's word, um, it judges them. And Paul here says, when I apply the principles of the gospel to what these men are teaching... The conclusion is that they are lying and they know it. 
They have one goal, one aspiration, and that is to pad themselves. To give themselves accolades. That somehow they are doing it right and better, and therefore they have this inside track on God that you poor Sunday worshipers don't have, you uh, poor uncircumcised people don't have, you pork-eating people don't have, uh, and, and go on and on. Go right through the list. Take it in any direction. I often ask them, do you, offer, do you have goats you sacrifice? Do you need to buy one from me? Uh, <laughs> where does it end? Because once you take it all, once you take one part of it, once you take that bite and have to be circumcised, now the whole law applies. And Paul's going to bring this out. And so in the midst of this, we have this, this contrast. You have this Greek believer, uncircumcised, that goes into Jerusalem, meets with the men there, comes away and still intact and smiling, um, no problems. And then on the other hand, you've got these snakes in the grass that are trying to cut off your liberty in Christ. And liberty is being introduced here. He's going to explain it when we get to chapters 5 and 6. What this liberty in Christ is like. What's it about? How do we define it? Uh, And does it have limitations? And we're going to look at those. That it doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Um, That American version of liberty. Um, It's none of that. And we're going to look at that. But he introduces it here that they're there to take it away. They're there to rob you of something that Christ died for. And you need to understand them in that way and deal with them in that way. To give them no quarters is the old world term, right? What does that mean? To give no quarters. You guys are military. What does that mean? (laughs) You're not going to give them a place to dwell. Quarters is a place to live. So... You're giving them no quarters. You're giving them no place they can surrender to, no place they can hide in, no place that they can be safe at. We're giving them no quarters here. There's no corner of the church that we're going to let them function in and say, uh, well, you know, we have a Sunday school class for people that believe like you. We meet on Saturdays. We have services on Saturday and Sunday just to accommodate you people. You know, we have, we have, well, if you're into that, you know, we have the circumcision group over there. Can you imagine a church having that? Um, coming into the door, I like, uh, you're an adult Sunday school class. We have the class for the circumcised people there and the uncircumcised people over there. Which are you? Pick your class. You see, Saturday Sunday worship isn't question now once we've dealt with circumcision if we don't require circumcision the law takes on a whole different role and we're going to look at that farther on in our study in Galatians so these strong words um, you might not be comfortable with and you might say you're being kind of judgmental pastor um, but I'm not calling them out God's word calls them out 
and their own actions call them out. Their own behavior. When they behave like this, um, they know what they're doing. That guy that called me, he knew full well what he was doing. He came in by stealth, and he wanted to engage me until he could get us to be bound to what he's bound into. And it's an arrogance uh, that strokes your own ego because you're depending upon your righteousness and not that of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and we thank you for your word before us. And we, again, pray that you might uh, strengthen us in our understanding of the gospel and we rejoice in the liberty that we have in you and uh, we are now fully warned that there are those that would rob us of it who are being called brethren, who call themselves brethren and would want to compare themselves to us that they might bind us into their error. And Lord, give us the wisdom and also the tenaciousness to identify that error and the evil that it introduces and the perversion that it makes of your gospel. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.